on the last day of the U.S. Supreme Court's term in 2013 that the court handed down a couple different rulings that were significant. They became major news. The, the first was that the court struck down DOMA, the, the Defense of Marriage Act, and they ruled it as unconstitutional. Uh, the second ruling that same week was that the court supported a, a lower court's ruling that California's Proposition 8 was unconstitutional. We're going back several years now, but these two rulings gave broad support for same-sex marriage. At the time, we thought that the battle Christian churches would face over the the next decade would revolve around this topic of same-sex marriage. We had no idea that that in less than a decade that the battle would move to the point where now the argument surrounds the, the concept of gender itself. Today, a church is not woke if it affirms the simple truth that God created man and woman and that gender is fixed by God at the the moment of conception when life begins. I I bring this up because the the speed at which cultural changes have occurred, that that our cultural norms have shifted, they've left Christian churches spinning, trying to keep up. Where should we spend our energy to... Should we spend it resisting the moral decline of our nation? How, how should we do that most effectively? These are some questions that, that churches are facing. Sometimes churches wonder, should we be concerned at all? The battle's already lost. Is it time now to, to wade into the cultural landscape and, and stake out an aggressive position? Or, or should we retreat and hunker down uh, in our Christian safe zones? We, we know that if we engage in, in the cultural battles we're likely painting this metaphorical bullseye right on ourselves. Is it wise? I I decided, as you can see from the the slide behind me, to to wait a couple of more weeks to return to our series in Revelation. As Pastor Aaron mentioned this morning, that uh, tomorrow morning, Grace and I, along with Pastor Aaron, will go to a conference down in Florida. And since it's Florida and it's Florida, uh, since it's Florida and it's January, that's what I'm trying to say. And it's January in Michigan as well. We de- Grace and I decided we'd stay a couple extra days in Florida and see some family members while we're down there and take a couple of vacation days. So we won't come back to Revelation for a couple of, of weeks here. I asked Pastor Aaron if he would preach next Sunday evening since there'll be limited prep time this coming week. So... I decided we'd set Revelation aside. It's already been set aside. We'll just leave it on the shelf for a little bit longer. And this morning, since we discussed how should we respond to suffering, I, I thought we would continue along that lines. Surely we can anticipate that if we wade into the cultural issues of our day, if we hold on fast to a, a Christian perspective uh, on these topics, we, we very well might encounter suffering. For, for that reason, I, I decided, let's look at a passage that the dovetails really nice with what Peter wrote this morning. That this evening, I invite you to turn with me to John's Gospel, to the 15th chapter. We're, we're entering right in the middle of the final words that, that Jesus tells his disciples when they're in the upper room on that last night, right before they go to the cross. Uh, the words that Jesus speaks that night is covered in several chapters of John, and we're kind of smack dab in the middle. The, the Passover meal ha- has ended. Uh, Judas is long gone. He's gone out. The, the evening is drawing to a close, and he's still 
conversing with his disciples. He, he's warned his disciples that, that the world around them is about to change. He is about to leave. He, he's given words of comfort. He, he's left words of encouragement. He, he's placed the, the coming events that, that they still don't comprehend, but that he knows are only hours away. He, he's placed those events into to God's eternal plan of redemption. In, in the first 11 verses of chapter 15, Jesus encourages the disciples to, to diligently maintain a, a vital connection to him through prayer and, and through obedience so that through their lives, spiritual fruit will come forth and, and joy will, will be evident. In, in verses 12 through 17, his followers are told to maintain a loving relationship toward each other be, because he's made them his friends. Because they have him in common, they should be loving toward one another. As we pick up his words then at verse 18, he, he's addressing the relationship between his followers and the world now in general. He's talked about his relationship with him, relationship with each other, now the world in general. How should, he, how, or how should they interact with the world around them? In, in contrast to the loving relationships that, that we ought to be able to anticipate with one another, we can anticipate that we will be hated by the world. That's the message that he gives. Yet, yet that should not surprise us, as we explained this morning, nor should it alarm us. Instead, what we find Jesus teaching in our passage this evening is that we should relish the chance to share Christ with a world that rejects us. We should relish the chance to share Christ with a world that rejects us. There, there's ample evidence that, that the world around us hates Christ. All you have to do is turn on the news, listen to what's going on, actually speak to your neighbor about Christ, and you'll find ample evidence that the world hates Christ as well as the gospel message, which is the message of, of Christ. As message carriers, we're going back to that, that same theme that, that keeps flowing through Scripture. We're his ambassadors. We should look for opportunities to share Christ. We are the ones who are given the responsibility to carry the message. As message carriers, we can expect that there will be on the receiving end of, of a lot of the hatred that the world has. Yet, even with that expectation, we should relish the chance to share Christ with a world that rejects us. In, in the verses we're going to look at this evening, we'll find three specific reasons why we should relish this chance. Even though it means rejection, even though it, it will be hard, why should we relish the chance to share Christ? Let's read the verses together, picking up in verse 18 of John 15. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now... They have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, 
they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. We should relish the chance to share Christ with a world that rejects us. The, the first reason for that is that we should relish the chance to share in the rejection of our Savior. To share in the rejection of our Savior. That, that's the first point that Jesus makes here in the verses. His disciples should expect to receive the very same treatment from the world that he received. By, by the evening when Jesus spoke these words, it, it's quite clear that, that the world hated him. The, the world was represented really as the majority of the Jews in Jerusalem, uh, along with the leaders of the city, and, and these all clearly hated Jesus. A, a death plot has been launched against him. It is well underway. Judas is out gathering the troops right now to, to come and arrest him. It would only be a, four, a few more hours before it accomplished its ultimate goal of, of killing him. That, that vast crowd that had welcomed Jesus just a, a few days earlier on Sunday when he rode into the town on the donkey, well, that, that same crowd has now turned their backs on him. And by the end of the next day, they're going to call for his death. The, the people have decided he's not the kind of religious leader they want because he's not going to help them throw off Rome, so therefore they're going to stay out of the way of the other lead, leaders that hate Jesus. Jesus now is talking to the 11 disciples that remain loyal, the, the tiny group, and he tells them that they should expect the very same rejection from the world that he is experiencing. In one sense, Jesus is unique. After all, he, he received the world's hatred first. But in another sense, all of the disciples who are connected to him because of their faith share in the same thing he has. They, and by extension we, we are still connected to Jesus we can expect the very same reception from the world that Jesus had. I want you to look at these verses carefully. Nowhere does Jesus suggest that, that we, here as disciples in 2022, should avoid this hatred. He simply states it will happen. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before. He doesn't even remotely suggest that we should withdraw from the world. Rather, all he says is that as we continue in this world, as we go on, we should expect to experience similar rejection and hatred to what he's experienced. That's our expectation. That's what's coming our way. I think we can even go a step further based on what Jesus says in, in verses 20 and 21. That the persecution that, that comes because the world hates Jesus, that is evidence of discipleship. The ultimate reason that, that we receive this hatred from the world is because we bear the name of Christ. When we are recipients of that hatred, that's evidence that we are his. The hatred demonstrates that we're connected to him. It is proof of our discipleship. As I said, we don't have to look beyond the weekly headlines to see evidence that, that the hatred of the world towards Jesus has not waned in the last 2,000 years. Simply stating that, that the Bible clearly states homosexuality is a sin is enough to bring hatred upon us. 
simply say that, that a relationship between members of the same sex should not be accepted brings on sites of, or cries of hate monger or, or homophobe or various things of that. Uh, affirming that there's only two genders, well, you will quickly meet cries of derision on, on any university campus these days. You know, as I mentioned this morning, even simply teaching this truth to children is being labeled as child abuse in many places in our world. Standing for biblical Christian values on almost any topic will, will bring charges of bigotry. We will be accused of being hopelessly outdated and actually being a, a threat to society. But this should not surprise us. We carry the name of Christ. We are Christians. The world hated him 2,000 years ago, uh, uh, years ago enough to put him to death. Why would we expect it to be any different now? So receiving stinging indignations um, from the world and, and these indictments of re rejection, that, that simply affirms that, that we are his. We're, we're receiving the same treatment as our Savior received. My greatest fear as we move into this year is not that we will increasingly face stronger and stronger rejections from the world. I actually anticipate that may be the case. My greatest fear is that we are not facing rejection already. We come Sunday after Sunday. We, we gather together and we hear how the world has rejected our Savior. We, we then go out and leave this building, and, and we live the other 160 plus hours of the week in the world, a world that hates Jesus, and yet we do not encounter any similar rejection ourselves. My greatest fear is that indicates that we really are not living our lives in a way that reflects our connection to Jesus. Now, as I mentioned this morning, I, I am by no means saying that we ought to go out and live our lives in a way that's obnoxious. There, there's no benefit to, to suffering if we're obnoxious jerks. We don't want to live obnoxiously. We, and we don't even have to become John the Baptist. Uh, we, we don't have to put on robes of candle, camel hair and yell, repent to people. We don't have to live in a, a, a way that makes us outcasts of society. What I'm saying is that if we simply live our lives in, as lives of obedience to Christ, if we distinguish ourselves as those who will, will live for righteousness, we will be different. Our goal is not weirdness. Our goal is Christ-likeness. Yet in our world, those two things are very similar. Christ-likeness is weird from the world's perspective. We will be different. And we will be rejected. Because a vibrant Christian life confronts the, the world around us with their sin. And, and it confronts them with their need of Jesus. Uh, a vibrant Christian life forces people to, to see the truth of who Jesus is. And as people who reject Jesus already, they will reject us as well. The, the only reason, according to these verses, that we will not be rejected by the world is if the world has no idea that we bear the name of Christ. Are we spending the hours outside of church living for the same things that the world lives for? 
are we doing the same things that the world is doing? Is there nothing about our lives that, that confronts the world with our Savior? The world has hated Christ. It will hate us as well. Are you being rejected by the world? Have you felt that rejection this past week? Jesus said, because you're not of the world, the world hates you. He says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Do you relish the chance to share in the persecution, the rejection of our Savior? You should. It demonstrates that you have a connection to him. Every Christian should want to share in the rejection of our Savior. We should relish the chance to share that rejection. The, the first reason is that we should relish the chance to share Christ with a world that will reject us. Rejection will, first of all, show us that we are connected to him, and we should relish that. The second reason that, that we should relish the chance to share Christ with a world that rejects us is that we should relish the chance to confront the delusion of self-righteousness. Confront the delusion of self-righteousness. In, in verses 22 through 25, Jesus explains that, that one of the outcomes of his life is, is that he stripped away all illusions of righteousness from the world. The, the Jewish leaders who were about to put him to death claimed they were righteous people. They were the religious of of Judaism. They, they were the highest levels that, that you could uh, achieve in, in the system of Judaism, which was designed to point to God. So these leaders claim that they love God. In fact, they claim that their lives were fully devoted to serving God. Well, those claims have been clearly demonstrated as patently false at this point. They've clearly rejected the righteousness taught by Jesus. Confronted with his works, the, the, the miracles he did, all the things that, that displayed that he was exactly who he said he was, the Son of God, coming in divine power, the Messiah himself. When they were confronted with those displays of power, they attributed it to the devil instead. Ultimately, they, they rejected Jesus. And their rejection of Jesus has demonstrated their rejection of God the Father as well. Jesus, God, God the Son, and God the Father are one. They're equal in essence. Jesus revealed God the Father most fully. He revealed God the Father so that to see Jesus was to see God the Father in, in character and in, in the flesh there. So Jesus says to hate him was to hate the Father. By their hatred, they demonstrate that they are not righteous. Now, now let's be clear. Without the coming of Jesus, the, the Jews would still be sinners. They're, it gets a little confusing by when Jesus says they would have no sin. They, they would still be sinners. He's not saying they would be sinless. They, they would still have been condemned in their sinfulness, just as, as each of us are condemned from birth because we are sinners by nature and then by deed as well. They were born sinners. They have sinned at various times. Even if Jesus had not come, they, they would be condemned to an eternity in hell, just like you and I were because of our natural sinful condition. 
What they would have lacked if Jesus had not come is the additional level of guilt uh, of rejecting God as he truly is in the flesh. Jesus, with his perfect display of righteousness, with his perfect display of holiness, with his, his walking in perfect fulfillment of the expectations of God, by rejecting that, they laid on an additional level of guilt to themselves Rejecting Jesus demonstrated the, this act of rejection of God in, in the fullest revelation possible. In, in some sense, as they did that, their, their condemnation increased. Or, or maybe we could say it, it, it crystallized. You could see it perfectly that they had rejected God because they specifically rejected Jesus. Before Jesus was walking the earth, they could make the claim. They could puff out their chest and make the claim, we're righteous people. We are God's chosen leaders. They were, we are serving God. Now, they weren't. They were in rebellion all along, but the rebellion wasn't obvious. Well, the moment they begin rejecting Jesus, that self-delusion of self-righteousness, that, that was stripped away. It, this, this claim of righteousness could not stand up. It, it could not meet any scrutiny. Their delusions have been stripped away so that Jesus says now they have no excuse in verse 22. The, the term that Jesus uses there when he says no excuse, it means that they have no pretense or, or there's no pretext for their claim any longer. They, they, they have no basis on which to make the claim of righteousness because they've demonstrated they are anything but. Now, I think it's a little bit like a person who's pulled over for speeding. And, and they're pulled over for speeding, and they say to the officer when he approaches the window, Officer, I have no idea what the speed limit is here. And the officer points to the sign that just happens to be 10 feet from their bumper that says speed limit. All he does is point and says, You have no pretense for your statement. It's obvious right there is the standard. All validity of that claim is stripped away. That's kind of what happened here when all Jesus had to do was say, look at your hatred for me. Your claim of righteousness has no validity. That does not change the fact that they would stand condemned all along before holy God, but it removed the delusion that they could convince themselves that the God was somehow pleased with them. They've demonstrated they hate God because it is impossible to love God and hate Jesus. Well, from our standpoint, 2,000 years later, where we sit now as Christians, this is another reason why we should relish the chance to share Christ with a world that rejects us. As we do, as we share Christ, we are confronting the delusion under which so many people in the world are living, that the delusion of self-righteousness. We're, we're surrounded by deluded people. Sticking with the example of, of gay marriage, there are people who argue that committed, faithful, gay marriage is pleasing to God. They, they argue that it's just as pleasing to God as a faithful, committed, heterosexual marriage. Echoing the, the, the nonstop images that are presented by our culture that you see on every television show and every movie and everything else, every book you pick up, even I, I like to read teen fiction to keep going on what message is, at times is being said to our teenagers. Every teen fiction now presents gay married couples as normal. So this is the, the image coming on, but 
the reality is they're sadly deluded because they have no idea what Jesus has actually said on the matter. They do not know what the Bible teaches. What the Supreme Court or Congress or our state or any other civil institution says on the matter will never affect the reality of what God has said. And what he has said is sinful is sinful. What God has said is immoral is immoral. It always will be. Our culture does not determine such things. God does. Now, would I like to live in a society that advocates biblical morality? Sure. It'd be great. But do I think that's necessary for the, the cause of Christ to advance? Do I even think it's essential for the cause of Christ to advance? Absolutely not. If anything, history is, has proven time and time again that when the government of a society aligns closely to the morality of the church, it's the morality of the church that goes astray. The church loses its impact on the world because the church becomes the world. The natural human tendency is to create a God that the, we can worship in a manner that we want to, or in, in any manner we want. And to create a God that will allow us to, to live in any manner we want. And that we can approach and do what we want with. After all, if you think back to Old Testament history, how else do we explain how generation after generation of Israelites who had the word of God given to them ended up following the Baals and Asherah. They, they love to find gods who let them worship the way they want and live the way they want. Even though Israel had evidence of God's true power, they had evidence of God's strength, evidence of God's care, well, our world is the same. Our world wants to create gods that will let them live the way they want, a God that approves of homosexual marriage, a God who approves of, uh, of gender fluidity, a God who approves of all kinds of, of immorality. Our culture wants to create those kinds of gods, and many churches, sadly, are filled up with people that are under the, the delusion that they are righteous, living the way they want. The Bible calls that self-righteousness. The only hope that any of those people have is a confrontation with Christ. A confrontation with Christ strips away the delusion of self-righteousness. If we care about the holiness of God at all, and I assume we do as Christians, genuine Christians, those who have Christ as our Savior, I assume we do care about the holiness of God, well then we should relish the chance to confront deluded people with Jesus. Because taking people to Jesus and what he has truly said is the only way we can strip the delusion from them. If we care about people who, who bear the image of God at all, and again, as Christians, I assume that we do, we should relish the opportunity to confront deluded people with Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone can strip away their delusions of self-righteousness. He will show them that they are condemned sinners because of their sin. He will show them that God is not pleased with their own so-called righteousness. We should relish to sh the chance to show them that, that God can only be found through Jesus. That to love God, they must accept Jesus. We should relish the chance to show them that their, their lives now are lives which hate the true God. 
We should relish the chance to show them that this God, little g, that they've created and are trying to serve is not Jesus. The one who has revealed the true God as he really is. A confrontation with Jesus leaves them without excuse. We should relish the chance to confront the delusion of self-righteousness. That's the second reason that we should relish the chance to share Christ with a world that rejects us. We should want the world to to be confronted with their delusion of self-righteousness. The third reason that we should relish this chance, even though the world will reject us, that we should relish the chance to share Christ, is that we should relish it because we will see some people accept Jesus as Savior. We should relish the chance to see some people accept Jesus as Savior. It is wonderful to share in the rejection of our Savior because, as I said, it, it assures us that, that we are truly his children. It is a privileged duty that God has given us to confront the, the delusion of self-righteousness on behalf of our Savior. Still, it really is the third point, this, this chance to see some people accept Jesus as Savior that, that brings the most joy in all the reasons we're looking at. In verse 19 here, Jesus reminds the disciples that he chose them out of the world. We, we know that the disciples are not the only people that Jesus has chosen out of, the, out of the world. All of us who know Jesus as our personal Savior have been chosen by God out of the world. We've been chosen. Furthermore, we're assured in Scripture that there are others that God has chosen. And he's promised that, that he will draw those he has chosen to salvation through the gospel message. The means of the gospel is how God works out his choice. And what that means for us is that we can share the gospel, anticipating that some people will accept Jesus. God has promised it. In verse 20, Jesus states that, that if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. What he means there is, is that as we continue on his behalf to communicate the commands that, that he left, and, and we know that the disciples, through their apostolic role, they, they fleshed out more of those commands as they wrote the rest of the New Testament. As we, we share all of this, there will be those who respond positively to it. We're assured by Christ Hours before he goes to the cross to die, we're assured by him that he has chosen some who will respond positively. He promises before he dies on the cross that not all will reject the message. One commentator, D.A. Carson, he stated it this way. He says, human beings belonging to the world divide around Jesus' followers and their message, exactly as they divided around Jesus and his message. Jesus is still the dividing point, just as he was here on this evening when he was speaking to his disciples. Nothing has changed other than now Jesus is the dividing point through the message that we communicate of him. The chosen will not reject Jesus. Just as they did not in that day, those who were chosen did not reject Jesus. They, they responded in obedience. 
That will continue. There will be some who accept his message now as we present Jesus through the gospel message. Friends, this is why we joyfully magnify Christ. This is our motivation. We should be relishing the chance to share Jesus by sharing the gospel message. We should want to show the world our Savior. The gospel is how others come to know him. We, we should relish every opportunity that, that we get to tell our friends and our families and, and even the casual acquaintances that God brings into our life what Jesus has done for them. He died for them, just as he died for us. It, it often stuns me when I stop and think about it that, that God uses us for the purpose of, of telling the world about his son. Doesn't that stun you? Think about it. God the infinite holy God who spoke creation into existence, who loves his son beyond all things, uses us to tell about him. As weak and feeble and flawed as we are as messengers, God uses us. We're such tainted messengers. Jesus is absolutely righteous, absolutely holy, perfect in every way. And yet, tainted messengers like us or who God chose to communicate of him? Yet we are God's messengers. We are his ambassadors. We are the ones that God has given the, the chance of sharing the marvelous glory of his son. God has entrusted this life-changing, this world-changing message to us. And as we share it, we have the chance to become spectators in God's life-changing, world-changing work. He's assured us that the chance is there. There are some who will accept the message in faith and will experience the, the miracle of regeneration, and we can be on the sideline watching it happen. We get to stand there and watch unfold and cheer God on as he does his miraculous work. Why would we not relish that opportunity? this stupendous chance that, that God grants us, why would it not be the highlight of our lives? The question really comes down to, are we relishing the chance? Are you relishing the chances that God has given you to share the gospel? This past week, have you taken opportunities to share Jesus? How about this year, we're already into the third week of the year. The year is quickly advancing. Are you using your opportunities? We should relish the chance to see some people accept Jesus as Savior. We should relish the chance to share Jesus with a world that rejects us. Because we know that as we do so, there will be some people who accept Jesus as Savior. Our country hates biblical Christianity. That, that should not be a surprise to us based on the verses that we looked at here this morning as well as tonight. We can expect suffering. It, it's something to anticipate. It, it should come as no surprise. We, we can expect rejection as we've seen here this evening. The world has always hated Jesus. And it will hate his followers as well. The question 
really is how will we respond to the rejection of the world. The, the response that we've seen in our verses this evening through, through these words that Jesus left with his disciples hours before he goes to the cross is that we should relish the chance to share him with the world that rejects us. We've seen three reasons. Three reasons. Even though we know that the world will reject us, we should relish the chance to share Christ first because we have the chance to share in the rejection of our Savior. Second, because we can confront the delusion of self-righteousness. And third, because we will see some people come to share Christ or come to accept Christ as Savior. As we share in the rejection, that first reason, that, that rejection shows us that we carry the name of Jesus. You know, our words and our actions as we experience this reality of our connection to him, it affirms that we are connected to him. We should relish it for that reason. As we confront the delusion of self-righteousness, we, we are able to go on God's behalf and show people that the, the God they've created is not the true living God. The Jesus that they've created in their own vision that approves of their version of righteousness is a false delusion. And that they remain condemned in their sin. It's only as we share Christ, as, as we confront them with Christ, that this delusion is destroyed so that they are without excuse, so that they are exposed before a true and holy God. We should relish the chance to do that. And then while we share the gospel, that third reason, we will see some accept Jesus as Savior. That should fill us with great joy. A chance to praise our Savior anew as we see those who God has chosen respond to the gospel message in saving faith. As they come to know him and they begin to keep his word as new brothers and sisters in Christ for all eternity. We should relish that chance. We should relish the chance to share the gospel with the world that rejects us. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that you would help us to be men and women who truly do relish this opportunity to be your ambassadors, to take this message of our Savior into the world, knowing that as we do so, the world it's overall will reject us. But it is what you've called us to. And as we live faithfully, we find great joy. The great joy of being obedient and the overwhelming joy of seeing you use us to do the miracle of salvation in the lives of others. Father, I pray that you would make us men and women that share Christ. That you would Use First Baptist Church of Sterling Heights in this community to share Christ. And that you would bring glory to the name of Christ through us. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.